Hi. Um, that music uh, just made me feel like I was a baseball player. You know, they have their song that they come on to the plate with. It's like, that's, that's a, not a bad choice for me. Um, all right, I should probably grab this thing, uh, which I hear uh, people have been having. Am I getting it right? Yes, okay. Um, so I'm Mark, uh, thank you. I was also told there's some water here. I'm gonna go through the opening of this quickly right now so that I don't have to deal with it later. All right. Um, so, well, that's inconvenient. Uh, so I'm Mark. Um, it's amazing in a city I've lived in for seven years how many faces I see that I don't know. Um, but I guess it's a big city, so hi. Um, a thing that I, I did at the last Lean Startup event that I did, I'm going to ask you to help me again. I do a selfie at the start of every talk, so I need you all to like wave to my daughter who's four years old. Just give me a quick, a quick, everyone behind me, your arms up, just a bit wave, yeah. Thank you. All right, awesome. Um, so, so here I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to talk about uh, something that I'm calling the innovation stack uh, today. I have how much time? That much time, all right, I better start cooking. Um, so uh, first I just wanna say thanks. Thanks to everyone who, who invited us uh, to speak. Uh, I'm very grateful to be here to get to speak with you. We're all pretty lucky that we get to take the day off, so thank you. Um, so uh, a few things about me quickly. I'm Canadian, uh, I've been down here for about seven years. Um, I work for this company, I co-founded this company called August that does organizational transformation. I didn't start out doing that. I have done all sorts of crazy stuff in my career. And the last six years or so have been this odyssey of learning to do, basically learning how, uh, how change works, learning how to help organizations transition to this century. And um, what I've learned is that it's really hard <laughs> and that um, the scars all over my body uh, that can, can tell the story of how hard this is. I'm gonna share a little bit about that. Um, one other quick note is just that the things that I'm gonna share with you today uh, are the result of the work of my team and I. Um, so thanks to all of these uh, awesome people. We're located down in Gowanus at the, um, uh, at the Bond Collective and you should all come and visit us. Maybe not all together because we can't handle that, but uh, come and say hi. Um, so, I've been thinking about transformation. I've been thinking, like, as I've been doing this work the last few years, I've been thinking about what, what is this work really? Um, because there's change management and transformation as it has been commonly known in practice for the last couple of decades, uh, which is really kind of like ordered and it has this distance to it and is largely ineffective and doesn't actually work. And then there's the stuff that we've been sort of hacking it away, away at and trying for the last six years or so. And the thing, the, the one sort of uh, almost, this is like the worst way to describe what I do, but the most honest, which is that I make people uncomfortable for a living. Um, and I hear that and I see that all the time because what we've figured out basically in our work is that um, what we're actually transforming is not, um, it's not structures and it's not systems and it's not practices, though those things all have to change. The thing that we're actually transforming is what we believe about how to work together, and that is so much harder than the other stuff. It's so much harder than, than what the chart says uh, or how your team measures stuff. It's a lot harder than that. Uh, and so I thought of Ricky Gervais, who uh, makes me uncomfortable every time I see him. 
Um, so the challenge that was put to me by the organizers was basically to come and think about how does the way that we organize influence the extent to which we are innovative. Um, and we have some thoughts to share about that. So first, a couple of relevant beliefs that I hold personally. Um, not going to speak on behalf of anyone else, but that I, I hold that shape how I think about this. The first is that work as it is practiced today in most big organizations does not work. Okay, and the evidence that I'd, I'd share on that, I'm not going to go into a bunch of statistics because of the number on that, uh, that iPad of how much time I have, but basically we are getting declining growth in productivity. The lifespan of organizations, of big organizations, is shortening. Uh, the engagement of people in organizations is going down, uh, and we're getting slower and slower and slower, so, so much bogged down in our own complexity and unable to make decisions. So basically, just as fact one, the way that we're working today doesn't work. And the second is, most acutely and importantly, that we're not learning fast enough. That, that we, we come to events like these, we have these ideas that kind of come into our heads, and we're like, yeah, uh, yeah, there's something there. But like the pace at which we are getting better, at which we are taking what's happening in our work and harnessing it and, and converting it into improvements and, and actual specific edits to what we're doing is not fast enough. So one third belief that I'm going to share that is a little bit provocative maybe for this group is that, um, and again, it's my own personal perspective, but I come by it honestly, is that, and when I say innovation, I mean innovation services in particular, are, in my opinion, a racket. Um, I believe that for the most part, we, uh, and, and I say that I come by it honestly because I am guilty of this. I have blood on my hands. I have offered innovation services to clients over the last, say, seven years of my career before the last couple of years. And I'm going to take you through a couple of examples of what I did and what we learned from it. Um, and I don't think it's dishonest. I just think that it doesn't actually lead to durable, lasting, substantive change in the conditions inside of big organizations. It might help you meet a quarterly, you know, like a, have a hot story to tell at, a, at the next quarterly earnings report, uh, or it might make employees feel a little bit better in the near term because they get an idea out and it's heard, but it doesn't actually lead to lasting change. So, illuminating failure number one that I have had personally. This is, or think of it as a face plant. Imagine my face just smacking on the stage. Uh, of what actually happened. So, um, financial services, Fortune 100 company I worked with many years ago, uh, basically hired us to work on vision and strategy for their organization. They loved it. They loved what we came up with, and they said, great, let's go do it. But they didn't have the capacity to do it. So they said, help us change and transform. So, we designed a whole bunch of new teams. We went and recruited the talent. We were the interface to the talent. We hired engineers. We hired product people. We hired designers. We designed new career paths for them. We talked about new reward systems for them. We actually carved out a different physical space for them in the office. And the, the leader of this organization was adamant that, that those teams, he was like, I don't want something off, it, off, you know, hidden away. We need to mix this in with my team. We need to learn about this stuff together. He was adamant about that. Embed these innovation squads inside of, uh, inside of my organization. So what happened? Um, some good stuff at first. Some great ideas were coming out. There were lunch and learns between the talent. We got the leaders to kind of say out loud that they were going to operate by slightly different uh, rules. Uh, so about a year later, none of the talent was in the organization anymore. And, and I remember telling this leader, I was like, I promise you that I can convince game-changing 
digital talent to come to your organization, to your old antiquated organization. I promise you that we can help you get these people to come there because they've got, they've got a pretty good value proposition. They have tens of millions of users. They, they could pay them good salaries. You get someone at a particular, you get an engineer at a particular point in their life and they're, ex you know, they're happy to say yes to something like that. But I told them, I was like, I'm not sure I'm gonna be able to get those people to stay. And that's exactly what happened. So what happened basically is that these new I ideas came out, but they were entering into the same old broken systems. In order for those ideas to go from being shared or whiteboarded to actually getting to the market, um, it, they had to go through, they had to get through production environments, they had to have access to users, they had to build on top of platforms. None of that stuff existed. And at the end of the day, that talent, if you, if you get a game-changing talent to come in, but they can't get access to users, they can't use cloud-based software, they can't actually ship to customers regularly, they're gonna leave. So that's what happened. So there are also rule exceptions where they operated by different rules than the other, than the other existing talent. Nothing, nothing to breed distrust amongst employees than saying these group of people play by these rules. They're special. They're the special innovation people and you play by these other rules. Um, and so ultimately couldn't retain the people. Illuminating failure slash faceplant number two. Uh, lab in a lobby. This was a fun, really fun project. Um, basically, we got hired by a leading hotel chain to build a mobile innovation lab in the lobby of the hotel. It was a, it was a very sexy project, very sexy idea. Carve out a gift shop. Um, we, again, did the same thing. We put together a team. We actually put one of our own employees in the team as the head of product, which is sort of like The Departed, but with hotels. And, um, and so basically she was, she and this team were working inside this hotel and they were like, you know, they were coming up with ideas and concepts for, for products and they'd go out and they'd test it with people in lobby. It was amazing. They had access to customers. So again, very sexy, um, you know, idea. And this, as opposed to embedding it with everyone else, these people were off on their own island. They weren't in the middle of the, the rest of the organization. So what went wrong? Who was playing defense for this team? Okay, there was nobody, there was no, there's one thing that I've learned is that when you're gonna try something new, you need some people whose job is just to kind of go like this. There was nobody who had the authority to protect that team and to give them the access that they needed. Um, second is that at the end of the day, it didn't matter what they came up with, in order to actually achieve scale and scaled impact, they needed, they need, these kinds of small teams need to build on top of the platforms and systems of the existing organization. And if you build them off a, 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 on their own as an island and they aren't able to integrate in those and they aren't able to frankly build those in a way that are gonna support their products, they're not gonna go anywhere. And then the third thing is, if you treat it as an island, generally speaking, I would say empirical evidence probably supports this, um, just gonna spout that out, uh, probably support this. Um, when, when the company goes through a down cycle, these kinds of labs are the first thing to be cut. They're the first thing to die, okay? Because they, they become indefensible, particularly if you're a public company. So, here's the problem with the moment that we're at right now. We're living in this kind of Dickensian moment, we're living in two spaces where like, we see stuff like this happening. We know that it's possible, like it is possible to do amazing things, incomprehensible things, like what is that? How do you do that? That like, it's actually possible to do these things. And yet, you know, this is, this is probably the, the most quoted statistic in the last five years on the speaking circuit is the Gallup report about 87% of people being disengaged at work. So in the US and the working population, this is the rough estimate is like, 110 million people that are bummed every day when they go to work. 
that are trying to, that, that have ideas. Like, so in a family of five, anyone here is in a family of five? I was in a family of five. So basically what that means, 87%, that means that your mom is bummed out and your dad is bummed out and your brother is bummed out and your sister is bummed out and like seventh, um, like 40% of you is also bummed out every day when you go to work. And we're sitting here talking about innovation, let's do innovation. But like the reality is that, well, well, Elon is doing this, Elon and his pals are doing this, everyone else is living in this. When I first met the leader of that financial services firm, we had this conversation about speedboats and freighters. And we were referring to the big company that he worked for as the freighter, and we were talking about how we had to unleash these kind of speedboats. And it's a, it's a really alluring idea, you know, that like, well, you can just, you know, like, yeah, the, the, the freighter is big and slow and it can't change directions, it can't move easily. And what was really happening in that moment was that person saying, I don't believe that it's possible for the freighter to change directions. And I'm not personally prepared to prioritize that in my career. And like, it, th this looks so much sexier to get these speedboats going. And I guess what I'd say is like, I kind of agree with that, and frankly, the way that we approach working with the freighters is through the lens of speedboats, is through teams. Teams as the sort of atomic unit of any organization and where we're sort of the, the, the unit of change in organizations. But we have to, we have to do something about this. And, and ultimately, if, if for innovation to not be a racket and for it to actually lead to real durable change for the people inhabiting these organizations and for the shareholders of them and for the communities they support, then we need to figure this out. So uh, I would contend that ideas are not the problem. Client I'm working with right now, they're having a, the, another firm is in there doing an innovation challenge and everyone's throwing up ideas. Honestly, I trip over new ideas every single day in every client that I work with. Ideas are not the issue. There's tons of them. And talent also isn't the issue. Yes, there is some difference. Yes, certain people with certain skills can, can make a difference. Um, but that's not ultimately, as you know, you're not going to retain them if you don't change these other things. So I would purport that, that what the actual problem is is how we're organized. This photo is of the New York, or sorry, it's for the Union Pacific Railways from 1910. This is one of the early org charts that's often shared, okay? So this is 107 years ago. What stands out to you about this photo? Looks the same. Looks the same. This is exactly how we organize today. 107 years, okay? In 107 years, we've changed all sorts of stuff. Women didn't used to be able to vote. Homes didn't have toilets in them. Now we've changed those things, but we're still working this way. This is still the way that we're organizing. So the basic kind of um, premise of, uh, of August, the kind of core central belief in our work is that there's a model for how, there's an operating model of organizations that built the institutions of the 20th century that was a great idea. And basically, and Bob talked about this very, very, uh, you know, made this point very well. Those were designed to focus on efficiency and control and, uh, and, and, and they were closed, they were private. There was no benefit to be other any other way and it was wildly successful. So don't feel bad about the fact that your organization was designed to do this. That's why it's as big as it is and as successful as it is today. But it doesn't work anymore and there's a new model that we call responsive um, that, uh, that actually helps the organization learn and, and, and metabolize change at the rate that it's coming today. So we're gonna shift from theory into practice. 
um, five reasons that organizations, and, and this, is, this is, I'd say also the strategy of August in terms of how we think about transformation is that, and this is, I'm gonna tell you a secret here. Like this is, you know, sharing all our secrets because um, we're all pals, right? You're not gonna tell anybody. Okay. Um, what we figured out is that we're all agreed on the, on, the, on the what that needs to happen. Yes, lean, yes, agile, yes, adaptive. Like, yes, we need to make our organizations that way. And the leadership development programs of all the clients we work with, they're all catching up. They all have like Clay Christensen and Dave Snowden and like they're talking about complexity. They're all talking about the right stuff. But where everyone's getting stuck is on the tangible, practical how. What do we do differently? How do we lead differently? How do we meet differently? How do we hire differently? How do we reward differently? How do we make decisions differently? And that's the thing, that's the, the white space that we have discovered is that the practical side of change is, is being missed about what do we do differently. And the, the secret, frankly, is that I don't actually care about any of the practices that I'm about to tell you about. What I care about is the opinions that are at the heart of them because there's a million practices to try what I care about is changing the opinions and the beliefs that the systems in the organization have and that the people in them have. And that's th these are little Trojan mice that maybe have some slightly different opinions in them that might spread. So reason number one, we're not learning fast enough. There's too few perspectives, okay? And what I mean by that is that um, only a few people talk, um, the introverts aren't heard, uh, that, uh, or the composition of the team is relatively homogenous. You know, there's all sorts of reasons to make your team or your organization more diverse, but the best one, well, there's, <laughs> I'm not gonna say it's the best one, but a reason is that diversity of perspectives is necessary in order to generate new breakthrough ideas, okay? Second reason, everything is implicit of why we aren't learning fast enough. What I mean by this is that when I ask leaders if, um, if their teams have autonomy to just go and do stuff and try stuff, all the CEOs, all the leadership teams say, yeah, they have lots of autonomy. We tell them, go do stuff. And then when you ask the team whether or not they have autonomy to go and do stuff, they're like, no, no, we can't, we can't do that. And they're not, it's not that any of them are lying, it's that it's fuzzy. It's not explicit. Third reason is that slow cycles of iteration, I'm not gonna belabor this one. Anyone at a lean startup event probably knows this particularly well. The fourth is the need for consensus, this bias to agree with one another, that we all have to agree in order to move forward, which is honestly paralyzing our clients, paralyzing the organizations we, wor we work with. And the, and the fifth is a relatively simple one too, it's just that impact blindness. Like we don't actually know if what we're doing is working because success equals shipping. Like we just did it, we don't know. So a thing, and like this is the first time, honestly, I'm using this language around it, but there's a set of particular practice that I'm putting together because I think they have an impact on the pace of learning in organizations. I'm gonna call this the innovation stack. So when there are too few perspectives in a team or an organization, by the way, all you photo takers, I'm gonna share these slides with you. We are a radically transparent organization. Our Google Drive is open. You can go find this and every other talk I've given in the last year and a half on there online. So I'll send you a link. Um, when there's too few perspectives and ideas aren't colliding, try rounds, okay? Now this sounds dead simple, okay? This is a dead simple practice. All of these are gonna sound so simple, but the thing is you gotta do them, okay? You can't just nod, you gotta go try this stuff. Okay, so typical meeting, this is the talk time, okay? This, you know, chatty, chatty uh, Carl over here in the corner is talking for most of the time. That person up there is talking for a lot of the time. These people are barely talking at all. Where are the introverts up there? 
probably probably over here. Where's the uh, the the senior people versus the junior people? Yeah. So this is what happens in most meetings with most teams. Okay. So rounds, just very simply, is ordered sequential input. Requires a facilitator. You're in a meeting. You're getting ideas. You're getting reactions. You're getting questions. You're demoing something. Instead of just saying, "Hey, what does everyone think?" If you say, hey, what does everyone think? You're going to hear from the senior people. You're going to hear from the extroverts. You need more perspectives out. So do rounds. Basically, just go one by one. No crosstalk. You don't talk over each other. Everyone has to speak. The other people, voices that get marginalized here also are the people whose first language isn't English or whatever place that you're living in. Those people, they, don't just, they just don't speak as easily. But they might have the idea or the perspective that's actually going to push things forward. Uh, and there's more details about all these practices also that, that you can access on our website, like even guides about how to do them. Um, next one, when everything is implicit, try agreements, a practice that we call agreements or local rules. And I'm going to focus specifically on decision rights. So this is a very simple tool that we use with literally every project team we coach called a team charter. There's lots of versions of team charters. I don't really care what, what, what stuff goes in your team charter, just that it's explicit. These are agreements that a sponsor is making with a team about, what, uh, about how the team works, about what its mission is, about what strategies it's using, about what it's going to measure. But look at, look at this thing. If you, if you really want to maintain fuzziness and, and have a team kind of spin in directions or get stuck, don't make explicit what permission they have to make decisions about things. Okay, so what this looks like, and it could be whatever, like there's a point at which it is unsafe for a team to make decisions th about themselves. I'm not saying to let any team go wild and do whatever. What I'm saying is just write it down. Write down what they can do and what they can't do or who gets to make the final call. That also doesn't mean that the person that can make the final call has to do that alone. They should seek input, but just make clear where the decision authority lies and then edit it over time. When your cycle time is too slow, ship weekly. I'm going to move through this one really quickly. You all know this. Iteration is key to learning. It's key to innovation. So what we mean by ship weekly, just very quickly, what it looks like is this. Um, literally every single team we work with, and it doesn't matter if that team is making a Super Bowl ad or if they're designing a new compensation system or if they're designing a new reward system, it's not just digital teams or product teams. We're getting every team we work with to ship weekly, whatever they're doing to align at the start of the week as a team on, on what they plan to actually ship at the end of the week and to push out to their stakeholders in whatever format it is. Live links, not dead documents. Go and access and find out where it is. When agreement is out of reach, try consent. Okay? I'm going to move through this one very quickly because I'm out of time. Uh, this is what in-meeting consensus looks like. Have you been in a meeting like this where everyone seems to agree? Everyone's like, yeah, totally, definitely, I'm in, sounds great. And then what actually happens is this, is that after the meeting, post-meeting blockage, it sounds like a medical condition, doesn't it? Um, but what, what actually happens is this person's like saying absolutely not. They're not saying that to be a jerk. They're not a jerk. It's that it's uncertain. They don't know if it's safe. They, don't, they should, they're said they agree because they felt like they should, but they don't. And we need to, this is the thing, is that we need to make it safe to surface that dissent, okay? So the fundamental difference uh, between consent and consensus is consensus is I agree and consent is no objections. Not I agree, not I think this is the best idea, just I don't have evidence this is going to do harm to our organization, so it's safe to try. Go do it. I don't know. 
So, and just very quickly what the process with that looks like, this again is a facilitated process. And I can tell you, this is the single stickiest, most transformative practice that we have done in any organization, particularly with leadership teams, is a different model for decision making that goes like proposal, people ask questions to better understand it, people share reactions to the proposal, um, people refine, the, the, pr the proposer refines what they think, and then we're just looking, does anyone object? Do you have evidence that's gonna do harm? If you don't, we're gonna try it, okay? And you just get into the cycle of not agreeing, not having to agree, but just trying stuff that nobody can prove is gonna harm the organization. Last thing, if the impact of your work isn't clear, try metrics. This sounds dead simple, but I can tell you, like the organization I'm working with today, there is an allergy to measuring things. There's an allergy to it. There's a belief that it's about, and honestly, I think the thing at the heart of it is that in most organizations, metrics equal judgment. People feel that they're being judged about it. You need to make it safe to measure. Okay, and so what I mean is, so in our organization, I'll show you what this actually looks like. This is our organization, this is open on the internet. You can go and look at it. Week on week, we gather every week and we just look at what's changed, okay? And so basically what I'm saying is that if you want a, a, an actual real, if you want to people to try new ideas and to, and to find out what works, then you have to actually measure what's happening and then try new stuff week on week and see what actually changes, okay? so. That is, uh, in summary, the thing, uh, a set of practices that I believe can fundamentally increase the pace of learning in teams and organizations, rounds, agreements, shift weekly, consent, and metrics. It's possible, despite the scars on my body, it is actually possible, we are doing it, it is fun, uh, and we are m producing less bummed people every day. It's hugely, deeply fulfilling work. Um, that's it, thanks.